1: Hello, I'm David Kern.
2: I'm Heidi White.
1: And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the Incurable Reader, on which we are discussing Walter Wangren Jr.'s The Book of the Dunkow. And we are here to discuss right, I guess it's part three, right? Yeah, part three. Uh, it's the it's a little I got penultimate confused. section. Yeah, the penultimate section, because part four is like short compared yeah. to these first three parts. Yeah. We're going to discuss these, this third part and I guess the first three parts together. Um, so we're not going to spoil how it ends, but we are going to spoil the battle stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll just put it that way. So if you haven't listened, I mean, if you haven't read the battle stuff, <laughs> then make sure you do that. If you don't want to get it spoiled before we dive into that, just want to let you know that uh, season two of Willy Windle," our podcast for kids is, is coming. The teaser trailer has been released. So you can go check that out with your kids. And yeah, we have some incredible guests coming on season two. Should I should I say some names, do you think? Should yeah. I drop yeah. That, so that people they can tell their off. kids? Drop
2: names, David.
1: Some of the guests coming up on season two of Withy Windle, which is our podcast for kids, of course, include Trenton Lee Stewart, who is the author of The Mysterious Benedict Society, which just had a uh, season one of its Disney Plus show launch. That's, that's going to be a really fun one. We've got, uh, towards the end of the season, we're going to have Ben Hatke on. He is the illustrator- of a bunch of stuff, including the Z to the Space Girl and Mighty Jack uh, graphic novels. We also have Jonathan Oxier coming on. Peter Nimble books, The Night Gardener. He's great. Uh, we got Christine Cohen. She's I the author of The Winter King. Books. Oh, we got Kate Albus on. She is the author of a great new book, um, which oh shoot, the name of it slips my mind right now. But it's a wonderful middle grade novel about us uh, kids during world war ii it's really great so we've got a whole bunch of great people coming on it's gonna be uh, a really good time so if you haven't tuned in yet to Willy wendell what are you waiting for grandma and i have a great time for? we talk to some great people it's super goofy super super silly uh, but it's we have hilarious we have a lot of fun too.
2: Like, yeah, I, it's objectively <laughs> Thanks, <Heidi>. funny.
1: <laughs> well thank you uh we also have the place the thing On the Cersei Podcast Network, Tim, that's you're like the head honcho of that show. That's right. Um, But I do want to say before I move away from Withy Window, I got an email today from somebody from a nine year old saying, "When is Miss Heidi going to be on Withy Window? She's on my mom's podcast, Close Reads."
2: So, when am I going to be on? So with you, so
1: I now it now it's been a challenge. The gauntlet has been thrown, and this either is going to be a Brandon situation but, uh, where we just string people out. Get to work mm-hmm. on my best-selling
2: mm-hmm. YA novel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go.
0: Uh, but but yeah, the place the thing. Um, Hamlet is done. Hamlet is done. I, I believe and we've not released the Q and A episode, but we have recorded all five acts. Uh, Heidi, myself, and your dad, Andrew Kern. And then coming up next is The Taming of the Shrew. Taming of the Shrew, I think, should be either a couple episodes should have been released by now, if not very, very soon. We're doing our last... Does that sound right, I think the first episode is
1: either up... I think it's up now. Yeah, I think it's up. So
0: We have a new um, addition to that show, Nora Ankrum, who is a director of plays, also the executive director of a theater in... Uh, West Virginia. And she's joined by, of course, me and Matt Bianco, who works for the Searcy Institute. And what's part of the reason that I invited each of them to be on the show is that Matt really loves The Taming of the Shrew. Nora is pretty skeptical of the Taming of the Shrew. The background is Taming of the Shrew is- So you're is, pinning them against each other. Well, we we tried not to because I don't want to like force them to be antagonists because they're both- <laughs> It's a they, very
2: like, controversial play. I'm teaching maybe, it right now in my Medievals class and it it's is- tough. tough, mean, It is right? there are some strong responses to that play. I cannot I wait to listen bet. to the series. It will shed a lot of light on it for a lot of people.
0: I think- What's worked really well with the podcast is that um, Nora and Matt are on opposite sides of the debate. And the debate is kind of like, is it a misogynistic play? You know, is – and I think the case – well, I will reserve judgment. I will refer you to the show yeah i'll refer you to the show and i yes, think the kind of
2: move to do taming of the shroom excited yeah, excited yeah. about listening to well,
1: it well although it is called the place the thing and it's all about shakespeare and eventually you got to get to it so you got to get to it eventually yeah <laughs> so um yeah there's lots of great stuff happening um one more thing i wanted to tell everyone about i haven't made it this is the first official announcement about this um i am moving to croatia
0: that is a surprise,
1: David. Yeah. I did not know that. Such
2: good wine in Croatia. That's a (laughs) great idea.
1: (laughs) I'm not, I'm (laughs) not moving. Just before, before people are like, this is how
2: rumors get started.
1: (laughs) I know. I try to start as many rumors about myself as possible. No. um, We actually have another podcast coming. It's called bibliography. And this is a show on which I talk about. Interesting or talk with interesting people about the books that they love. So it's, we're going to be authors you know like novelists it's going to be uh musicians athletes whoever wants to come on that is you know willing to come on and talk to a guy who owns a mediocre bookstore and mediocre um, bookstore medi- medi- midtown a mid-sized Whatever. north carolina city so it's like Mundo we're gonna be starting that right in now. october <laughs> we're gonna <to> be <laughs> we're gonna be, be save um, the world We've got we've got a couple of North Carolina authors that we're starting with Ron Rash and Wiley Cash. These are like pretty great novelists, actually. And then after that, we've got a bunch of uh, different authors and artists of of various disciplines uh, that we're going to be talking to. And that's going to be once a week. Although the first the first week we'll have two episodes. But it's really I've recorded a bunch of episodes. It's really fun. Some of these people are, you know, their knowledge about about books is just incredible sometimes we end up talking for a half hour about writing because they're novelists and like these are the books that inspired them to be writers and you just never know where conversations with people who love books are going to take you so be on the lookout for that you can subscribe to that um in the next week to 10 days so i just wanted to let everyone know about that and we'll be posting uh, links to that and to each episode and so forth but okay that's the business let's let's talk about the book of the dun cow now i think i need to maybe fall on my sword here I can I to take the blame, um, because I'll just put it this way: if in the last episode we may have been more negative than we meant to be coming across about the book, and we may have that may have happened because this is a book that I think makes me feel dumb, <laughs> and so we end up talking about things that maybe people were not as interested in so for example we had you know heidi's done a, heidi's taken me and tim through some of the medieval symbolism and the things that that's alluding to and that was partly because i didn't know what was going on yeah <laughs> you know it's a book that made me feel like I, w- I was a little confused at times and so heidi was helping you know i think i turned to heidi's knowledge of the medievals to help clarify and focus some things for me but then there's other people who aren't as interested in that and i think maybe that led to it seeming like Tim and I didn't like the book or being more negative. When in reality, we were just trying to get some clarity and, and help understand it a little better. And so we were turning to that, but we also here on this podcast, are big believers in like, you don't need expertise to love a book. Mm-hmm. How do you, I think you specifically did say that last week.
2: Yeah. But I was the one going on and on about all the medieval symbolism. So I,
1: right. well, the, y- you me. know, we kind of got into the, Anybody we kind of got into book. that water. Yeah. yeah. And people, we know people love the book. I don't think that either Tim or I meant to be as negative about it as we came across. I think that you can read this book in a lot of different ways. Like you can read it as a novel and you can look at it from in the, the ways that you would look at a traditional novel. And I think that if Tim and I do have any complaints, they're probably about the way that it breaks traditional novel rules, but you can also look at this as like a story that's in keeping with a much larger, grander tradition that that is in keeping with the medievals and is in keeping with fairy tales and fables and all those sorts of things. And I don't think Tim and I have, like we don't have any complaints that I know of, we haven't, you know, I I think we feel good about this book as far as that goes. Tim, do you want to add anything here? I just wanted to sort of say, we didn't mean to be as negative as we may have came across based on some of the comments online. And that I think is where that's coming from. And that's why I perhaps steered us more into the expertise mode of reading than was necessary. Tim, did you want to say something? You look like you have something on the tip of your tongue.
0: Well, I, I I want to defend Heidi's taking us into kind of like the symbolism of the medieval world. I mean, one of the other things we try to do on the show is we try to give people... Um, a depth of insight so that they can enjoy, ha- have a depth of enjoyment. And I, I took Heidi's kind of like elucidation of the um, medieval symbols and tropes within the book to be an attempt to do that. Um, also, me, she knows so much about it. It's fun to hear her get excited about Yeah, absolutely.
2: It. Like Heidi in a wine also
0: shop. Also
1: for me, <laughs> would you say yeah. like Heidi in a wine <laughs> shop? <laughs> <laughs> Um yeah. or or on dressed like your favorite Timwi character day yeah right, right, Polonius
0: what <laughs> so <laughs> um, the, the thing I think the this biggest struggle that I've had with reading this book is what you said in a different way, David. I oftentimes end a section and I feel like, what am I missing? I'm missing something, and so I fully grant that people who are enjoying this book and like the richly drawn conflict between good and evil, um, you probably see something that I just don't see. And maybe, okay. Part of the, part of the issue also, I think is that, um, if people have been frustrated at you and me, David is whether or not we have earned it or not, we have a certain mantle of authority being on a show that talks about novels all the time. We've kind of like put on this mantle of authority. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether I'd say authority, but we have a platform. Yeah, we have a platform, which, I mean, (laughs) I think that's saying the same thing that I'm saying. There's like a certain authority that you get, whether or not you have earned it or not. You know, if you have a podcast, you have a certain level of kind of like authority as a commentator. And I completely admit that I've looked back at some of my opinions about past books and have been like, oh, that was embarrassing. That (laughs) just wasn't right. That just wasn't very insightful. That was a shallow reading. And I completely acknowledge that this is the case for my reading of this book. It may just be really shallow. There's clearly something that i'm not getting here that other people are getting and to be fair we are all reading it for the first time which i think does not happen much on
1: this podcast so we're kind of like in real time without knowing how it ends trying to be like wait uh okay huh wait i'm confused you know yeah for people who love the book and have read it a lot of times that probably is like annoying (laughs) i bet
2: well i I thought the conversation in the last episode was really rich and i i thought it was great uh I, I just I really like what you said earlier, David. You said that you can read this book in many different ways. And, and Walter Wangren Jr., he said that he said this. I and he said all authors do this, which is fair. Um, but he said he resists categorizing this novel that he wrote. And I think there's a lot of um, I think there's a lot of accuracy in that. This is a novel that in many ways defies. Uh, the attempt to yeah. put it in a niche, right? <clears throat> to put it like in a section. Um, you know, Tim said it won the National Book Award uh, as in science fiction. That's uh, like I'm still a little bit right. I'm like, huh? Question mark? Yeah, right. right? Um, but yeah, why also, is it science fiction? Like, uh, it's a great question. I really don't know. Like, I, but but if you ask me, well, what other genre would you put it in? I'm not sure, right? And so I think that that then lends itself to rightfully examining the book and the craft of the book. And I I think that's kind of where the last conversation took us. But to your point that you, that you made, David, there's, there's more, right? Like if it defies characterization in a certain way, then let's look at it in a different way. And that, that's where, um, you know, is it a fable? Um, Is it an allegory, which no, but it has allegorical elements to it. You know, for me, geeking out over the medieval stuff that like some people don't care about that at all. And that's totally fine. Like, so, but because it kind of defies characterization, that's where my mind went in reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's really fun to look at it from multiple angles. So, you know, however, it, however the conversation goes today, because this is our well, first the... time finishing the novel, none of us have read it. Now we have. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> Although we didn't read the FET the last like, we're not going to discuss like part four, the, the, those last like.
2: I just learned that Tim told me that right before we hit record. I didn't know, so now <laughs> I see like We're not <laughs> doing any final words. End.
1: That's like six whole pages. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, um, yeah, I think that again, I'll take the blame for that negativity because for me, I, it was not so much like I'm when if I was if I was coming across as negative, it was less. I think this is not good and more, I'm. I need some help personally with this particular part of it, and that's where I think we don't plan what we're going to talk about on this show. Like we we don't have like an outline. We don't have, I mean, except when we're trying to you know do a bit on the Patreon show about how Brandon shows up late. We don't do like we don't plan like you know scenes and, and plot it all out. Um, it's usually we start with one or two questions.
2: Can we just follow the conversation. It's fun.
1: Yeah. So here in part three, then it's the battle stuff.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: we're going to get Carnage and a Valorous Weasel and Valorous. the battle between uh, um, Ch- Chanticleer and Cockatrice the battle between the Roosters and um, by the way there was a comment how do you say his rooster wife's his hen wife's name
2: I say Pertolote Pertolote
0: what do you say Tim? on the audio it's Pertolote Huh. I know. And Let's when the I first read it before I heard the audiobook, I was trying to rhyme it with paraclete. Like which hmm. failed. Which failed. Per-te- so what do you say,
2: Heidi? I said per- pertalote, but I if they're saying pertolote, then I mean that's maybe less fancy. Why not be less <laughs> fancy? So.
0: I'm, I kind of uh, like Perlote. Perlote. It sounds kind Perlote. of my right? right? Like Perlote yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. I say
2: Nausicaea well, for that character in the Odyssey because I think go it sounds beautiful.
0: So I just made it I up. I thought you were talking about the Nausicaea creed.
2: <laughs> Nicene. Nice
0: <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I thought you had like some special nuanced kind of like you're just gonna made it your own. Nessa am Who's trying to the make nice a,
2: a the, woman's the, name sound as beautiful?
0: The Nachene chi- creed.
2: Yeah. The <laughs> Nachene
1: creed. <laughs> Let's go with Pertolote. All right.
2: Per
1: per Pertolone? Could do could oh, combine them to both. Everyone one. knows so how not
2: experts we are. Like, yeah, exactly. yeah, right. There's also so there is
1: also the scenes between Chanticleer and Mm-hmm. Pertolode. Um <laughs> and uh, and then we get the stuff with the dog and worm appearing and um, a German-sounding word when they're in the middle of battle. Blitz, 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 blitzschlange,
0: blitz Hey, by the way, can we talk about that? I I didn't. This is an example. This is a perfect example. I didn't understand that. Was that there? We, did you, Did you know what word? that meant, Heidi?
2: The what? Sorry. Can the German word in the middle of the battle. Blitzschlange no. uh uh-uh. uh I didn't know that. Um, I just figured it meant like a attack from the sky.
1: <laughs> <laughs> probably. Yeah, it probably does. I did look um, up the
2: Latin, but I did not look that. This up. is time for attack from the sky. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, where do where do we want to start? we want to go backwards? Do we want to start with go worm on. or do we want to
0: I don't we know want what to start with worm. That.
1: Okay. Do we want to start with worm? Let's start with worm. Yeah. Coming and then do the battle. Yeah. Let's start with worm. Okay. Because we've got you know we do have these different heroic characters. Um, we have like this. Not to delve into the uh, expert, you know, but there are allusions to things here. And with the weasel, for example, it had this vibe of a Homeric, Aristea or something like that. Is that the word? The where the we're like
2: yes. Hector does.
1: goes crazy mm-hmm. in battle. It has that vibe of Hector going crazy in battle, but then, Cockatrice pulling an Achilles, right? Um, and then, Worm feels like a god or something like that. So it feels very epic mm-hmm. um, in this mm-hmm. in this section. Um, and then we get Worm, and you know, people talk. You know, it talks on the back of the book. People have talked about it in the in the in the Facebook group about how this is a tale depicting the epic struggle between good and evil, and that becomes you know. These sort of large symbols of good and evil become really clear in this. It literally comes out of the earth. Right. Like a, it's like almost like it's oozing out of the earth. Does
2: he say, sum worm, sub terra, right? I am worm under the earth.
1: When we get to that part of the book, we have reached a point where Cockatrice has died and Chanticleer is in this. State of despair, mm-hmm. it talks about how he has lost hope at mm. the beginning of the novel. we have this fraught character who's proud then he 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 emerges as this heroic figure in you know classic you know knightly fashion. He takes the mantle and he goes out and faces the evil knight and he defeats him and then here at the end he realizes that that he feels like that was in vain because there is this deeper evil at the core of the earth that he can't overcome. And so in the end, he, he has lost his hope. <clears throat> and so I, I want to talk a little bit about the complexity of this character. Mm-hmm. Heidi, when you think about his courage and his bravery, and I'm going to need you to talk for a minute because I just realized my computer's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I'm going to need to go.
2: You have one job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know.
1: (laughs) I'm going to have to go brave the stairwell and find a charger. Um, When you get to the complexity of this character, what is most compelling for you? Mm -hmm. The moments of pride, the moments of despair, or the moments of courage? And I don't mean to say that like, one of them. Right. Like the whole the point is that all of that makes a complex character. But for you as you're reading, what most stands out to you as most compelling? Like when are you most enraptured with the book and with this character's arc? Carry it away for a second. Tim, if you need to jump in, do so. I will be back momentarily.
2: BRB. <laughs> so yeah. Um, no, David, I'm really glad that you're asking this question because I think that the psychology of the characters has replaced the medieval ma- mindset as my favorite part of the novel at this point. I really love I, my favorite part of the book by a mile. And I, I really, I really love this book for a myriad of reasons is the conversation that he has with Pertolote in the field of the dead in the middle of mm. the night before the big battle.
0: When everyone's all the injured are groaning.
2: And his, even in is their sleep. The, right. And the, the height of, I think as David just said, what I love about Chanticleer is um, he's a rooster, but what I'm about to say is not wrong. And that is that he's so human. Um, he's, he's this great hero. This, he has this great soul. Um, but, and, and then he fails like so profoundly at the finish line, and that is—I don't know. To me, that's like my biggest fear. He in fails
0: at—he fails at the finish line. Like he—he he ha- he despairs, he
2: gives in—not only to dis- to pride and despair, mm. Mm. and he's, which I think is a really brave thing to do as an author, to end the book in your hero's pride and despair. Like that's that is a that's a pro move Walter Roenger and Junior. Like that's that's un, I I've it's it's how much how can I say this? It's like the most unsatisfying and yet the most profound ending to a novel I've read in a really long time.
0: Okay, how how is it different than the the conclusion of All the Pretty Horses? John Grady Cole mm. dissatisfied with his plight with the injustice of the world
2: because John Grady Cole did the thing, Chanticleer oh. failed. Like, and that, but is, did,
1: so that's an interesting question, though. I'm back, by the way.
2: <laughs> hi, um, it is an interesting question, and you do need the final six pages to mm. before we can delve too much into it, um, because that. Adds a lot of depth to the question, but so far in the novel, yeah, like he but it's complicated, as David's pointing out, right, because he uh he does give in to despair, there's no doubt about that, and pride um and so they win two battles, and then they have this like heroic he has this heroic rise, right. And while he's doing that, I'm thinking about like the loneliness of leadership, like as Mm. he's encountering this, he, and then he has this profoundly lovely conversation with Portolote on the field of the dead. Reminds me of Henry V before Agincourt. Exactly. Very, very much so. Um, That idea of the king who is completely alone, even though surrounded by an army of loyal followers who have committed heroic action of their own. And yet he is the king and, 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 and he's also a man. And like the war between the king and the man is very Shakespearean um, and very deep. And then I am expecting him to ride out and find some way to defeat Worm. And then it ends up being Mundo Kani. And that. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's how, and then it just ends like with no resolution, with no repentance, with no reunion, with no opportunity to ask forgiveness. And then, at, and, and it's so unsatisfying, but at the same time, like, that's me, right? Like I am Chanticleer. That's what I would do, right? Like it just, it brings this duality between the capacity of a hero and what it means to fail all in the same moment complex and I thought really just so powerful I loved it I was the perfect ending and yet I was completely unsatisfied how do you do that as an author I think that's
1: maybe Heidi maybe what we should do is just just live just read these pages so we can talk about it because it's not that long sure um
2: Whatever you guys want to do, I'm then we could just that. jump
1: right into the Q and A next week, since I know people have questions for us. <laughs> um, should we I just do to it? Totally. Down so then with we could talk about it. Totally. See, down with initially, that. I was thinking when, when we did it this way, I was just like, "There's a natural break there." Um, didn't quite realize how many. Like at first, I didn't realize how many few pages there were, and then I thought, "Well, the, we we could talk about up to the ending, and then use talk about the ending, and then the bigger picture." But it seems like to really talk about this character we really needed to do the ending so
0: um so it's chapter- eight pages david 20 I, so i wonder if we could like yeah i guess it is press pause re- you and i could read it come back thanks to the magic much... of audio editing we come True. back instantaneously because we just stopped the recording just we just put in some back jeopardy we, music oh, we play some jeopardy music <laughs> I, heidi do we have time to do that sure I mean,
2: yeah we Heidi
0: was,
1: uh, Heidi was ambitious with her homework and she <gasps> made us look, she made us look, look, look like the kids that sit in the back of the room. Although I actually sat in the back of the room and I was a,
2: no, it was just B+ me student. making a mistake and <laughs> finishing when I didn't have to, you, okay, know, so, you know, how's the, how is the accusation against Chanticleer from Worm? is, uh, you, you suffer, you are the King who suffers more than he has to. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's me. you
1: you suffered more than less you have heroic, to less <laughs> <Yeah>. more
2: flawed <laughs> suffers more than I have to
1: okay so we're pressing pause and mute read it get back together in 15 minutes great. do you have time? 10 10? 8 minutes <laughs> <laughs> Heidi is that good?
2: sure that sounds great okay
1: alright you can go get coffee or something and we're back <laughs> Tim and I finished the book. I had a little problem, though, because my book and Heidi had a tostada. tostada. Or half a I had a
2: little tostada. problem,
1: though, because my book cut off mid-sentence. So then Heidi had to what? send me a screenshot of the final paragraphs. Yeah. You're kidding. I didn't get the final. I didn't have the final page.
2: Yeah. David was like, how does this book end? Does it end with Chanticleer? Lind? <laughs> but no, it does. Indeed, does doesn't. not. It does not. Is kind of – it's a a genre-bending book, but not that (laughs) (laughs) genre-bending.
0: There is a period at the end of the book. Um, Can I tell you guys a story about a misprint in a book before we delve deeper into the Book of the Dun Cow? I bought a book um, about modernism and postmodernism. And I had original source readings. And one of the original source readings was from Jacques Derrida, which if you were associated with the Academy in the 1990s, everyone was talking about Jacques Derrida.
2: Nobody's reading him because he's too hard to read.
0: And I think he's also...
2: He never used periods and stuff. It's weird. His
0: time has kind of run out also. I think, I don't know, maybe that's me talking. But anyway, in this book, this continental philosophy reader, Jacques Derrida's essay halfway through the text turns upside down. And I was like, bro, that is next level intertextuality or whatever it was called. <laughs> and then I kind of like, I mean, for years I believed that Jacques Derrida it it commissioned it did it, it, did it on purpose. And then one day I kind of backed down and I looked at the spine. You know how like like different kind of groupings of um pages yeah. are kind of together and I'm like oh, this is actually a printer's mistake. And it just <laughs> happened to fall with the Jacques Derrida essay. it just happened to fall. That's hilarious. Yeah, right. It would have been.
2: The printer's like, you know what would awesome.
0: I'm going to make this flip.
1: I'm going to make this flip. <laughs> well, um, I did get, I did end up getting the final page. Heidi yeah. sent me a screenshot of her book.
0: So now we're all caught up. And Heidi, I actually understand your comments a little bit better about the kind of despair of Chanticleer because I think at the end before the final word, I took Chanticleer to be kind of like um this hero who gave everything, ended cockatrice's life, had no more to give, couldn't fight worm anymore. In comes the dog to save the day. But in the final part, Um, We do kind of read about his despair that he treated Mundo Kani so so poorly, and now he's dead, and he feels guilty about it. Yeah.
1: Hey, I I I, I have a question. We have a handful of characters who do heroic things in this book. We've got uh, Mundo Kani, John Wesley, the roosters.
2: What'd
1: you say? Oh yeah, Pertolote, Pertolote. and uh, of course Chanticleer, who leans. Um <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then you just, just
1: leans in <laughs> the soft, the Who two questions here. In this book, what is heroism? Mm, good question. Who is the most heroic character in this book? So those two questions. See
2: now I think we're like talking about the book. I think that's what the book is exploring is the question of what is a hero. Right. What's it take to be a hero? Is it this like lone wolf brave? It's Mundo Connie who kills worms. So we've got John
1: Wesley. They all have like their own right. Aristeas, You know, John Wesley goes wild in the yes. battle. He's like he's like an Ajax or something like that. And you've got uh um I'm trying to think if anybody would be a Odysseus. I'm not trying to make draw two but I'm just you've got each of them have their own Right. it Aristeas. has a big yeah. Iliad type right. scope, yes. Um there's even walls and so forth. And,
2: in a walled yeah. city, like a chicken coop. Like, it just occurred to me when I was reading it this time. I'm like, oh, it's like a walled medieval or ancient city. Yeah. I and there's, get it. And
1: there's the... uh
2: <laughs> And like cool. the, the
1: bells, yeah. he's basically chiming the bells every time he crows and stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, so given that we've got... Let's just say these... Let's go with these four characters. Chanticleer, John Wesley, Mundo Connie, Pertolote. Pertolote. Which character... Do you think well let's is, uh, let's do the first question. What is heroism in this book?
2: Mm-hmm. well i I'm, I'm going to answer this first, even though I'm talking a lot. I'm sorry, and then I'm going to stop talking. I'm just going to Chanticleer lean how you said something, and then she stopped talking for a while. Um, and that's so why I think I think, yes <laughs> that no, I'm really going to say something. Um, so the whole story completely takes a turn with Mundo Kani because I did think that Chanticleer was the hero. And I think he is the protagonist, but I think it's Mundo Connie who's the hero. And I think that Walter Wenger and Jr. is doing something a little bit daring and very experimental with this, um, because, uh, and, and, and biblical, right? This, this, it's the suffering servant who ends up killing the monster uh it's not the feudal lord it's not the liege lord it's the vassal who's endearingly inept throughout the entire story and ends up being the one to he ends up being the odysseus right driving the stake into the eye of the cyclops So he's he's the one who blinds and destroys the worm and then goes into the depths of the earth um, in a very Gandalf like move. Right. He's killing the Balrog. He's going into the bowels of the earth. He's he's going into death. He's he's the Christ figure of the story, not Chanticleer at all. So he takes this like very daring turn right at the end. Um, and and we, we ha- we're behind the eyes of the supposed hero the whole time, the hero we expect. We're behind the eyes of the epic hero, the pagan hero in a way, uh, uh, in, in terms of the motif of what a hero is. The leader, the king, uh, the, the, the able one um, with the Aristia, but it ends up being the servant, who, who wins the battle and kills the monster. I've never read a book like that before. It was completely, it, I knew that Mundo Kani was going to do something heroic. Like that's kind of like, and sacrifice himself, but I didn't know he was going to be the one to kill worm. You know, usually like he's the sidekick, like you'd expect him to be like the sidekick who sacrifices himself by saying like, worm over here, over here. And that's what I thought was going to happen the whole time. And worm was going to come at him. And then Chanticleer was going to kill worm. But it wasn't that at all. It was Chanticleer in pride and despair, giving up on the battle. And then Mundokani saving the day. That, thats And I think he is making a commentary on heroism. I think he's saying it's not the one that you're going to expect, which is a very biblical message, not an epic classical message. He's changing the rules. Did
0: you guys expect that Chanticleer was going to go into – the crack in the earth's crust and do battle with worm and die and be raised again. Am I the only one that thought that?
2: Yeah, no. It's supposed to be Chanticleer is Supposed to be the Christ figure, right? We know this is a Christian right. story. No, right, no.
1: But well, the only thing about that is the dun cow talking to the the dog right. earlier is like he's obviously being saved for something.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Um, and the dun cow is this sort of peripheral character who never really is explained. It's kind of... Yeah, who was the dun cow? Kind, kind of um, mysterious. It's like a mystery. Yeah. You know, it's one thing that I was thinking about is it talks about how they're fighting an evil that is mysterious. You know, I think that's the, the phrase of the word.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I
1: was also thinking about how the opposite of that is also true. Like the good, the ultimate forms of good and evil are both mysterious in this book, Mm. Um, which makes them hard to grasp onto because then everything in between is sort of uh, flawed. You know, I mean, even Mundo Connie is like a holy fool perhaps, but um, confused. It can kind of a confusing character to figure out what's going on with him. And then you've got Chanticleer who is, you know, he's, he's courageous, but also full of pride um. You and you got all these other characters that are stuck between these two mysterious poles, trying to, in fact, being pulled. Trying, some of them are being pulled one direction or the right. other, like such as the turkeys and the foxes and the otters and so forth. <clears throat> but so, Tim's question about the dun cow. Who who is who is she? Yeah, is she like a, supposed to be the opposite of Worm? Is she supposed to be like a creator? How do you um, read that?
2: I mean, she's not she's not God because they talk about God. So I think she's a, a saint or an angel. Yeah,
0: she, I thought I thought of her as an angel
2: or the Virgin Mary, like the, you know, the she's a female, mm-hmm. um, and the legend of the Dun Cow is. Uh, there's this cow that wanders that has an inexhaustible supply of milk, right? That's eternally comforting, that's available to nourish and sustain the wanderer um, and appears when she's needed. So I think we have an animal version of a saint or of the Virgin Mary Mm. or an angelic visitation right? who speaks the words of comfort and dwells in like the in-between space between heaven and earth.
1: So is the... um... Is the opposite is worm the opposite of the dun cow or the opposite of God? God. So then, Cockatrice is more of the dun cow in the.
2: I think uh, I think that Cockatrice is the counterpoint. I mean, I think you can make a case for that, but I interpreted Cockatrice as uh, the the inversion of. Chanticleer, right? Because they he sees him as a mirror. As a, he's a mirror to. You, they use that word, I think, three times mm-hmm. when he looks at he sees a mirror, um, and he thinks he's looking at himself. Like he's like what. He could be like this on a, on on a, on a psychological level. He's like the dark side. Like if you were to split Gollum in two and you have Gollum over here and Smeagol over here in separate characters, instead of in the same person, like, I think that's what's happening. And Chanticleer knows I could be like that if I were to give into pride and despair, Mm. which he does Mm. at the end. Right. So it's a really complex psychological study of Lots uh, on that level, and then if you zoom out a little bit, um, he he dwells under the terebinth oak, which is a place of pagan sacrifice in the Bible, and so you have like the pagan king and the Christian king um, archetypes in Chanticleer and Cockatrice, and so you can look at it on, from that perspective too.
0: Okay, how do you think he gave in to pride? Did Chanticleer at the end like despair? I get, yes. but pride. Where did you see pride?
2: Uh in his response to Mundo Connie, um in his despising of him I throughout, yeah. I think he begins with pride and you think he's conquered it, but it comes back
0: I see, uh-huh,
2: and so that that's the battle for Chanticleer. He fights on the external and then he you know kind of fails at the end mm. and and but then he repents like a true repentance in the afterward which I'm glad we've read for this episode because I think that's important. And that's how he becomes a true hero is through repentance and through integrating himself back into his marriage and his community.
1: Someone, I don't know who it was, said they thought that I was going to use the, say that this book is a little on the nose. (laughs) And that, that, that passage, I mean, it works for this book, but it's definitely on the nose. Like, it's just kind of like, repent and everything will be like, that's the, the solution. Um, so it is a little on the nose, but the question is whether that on the noseness, like if you were judging it by the rules of most novels, then you'd say that's, that's where he breaks the rules. And that's why it feels, that's why I kept bringing up or brought up Bunyan last week. Cause it feels a little bit like he is, I mean, he's purposefully trying to be on the nose. That's why it feels like a fable or an allegory at times, because you have characters. I don't mean this in a negative way. Character's preaching. Like she is preaching to him. She's, like She's it's a homily what she's offering to him um, and you wouldn't normally get that in in, in, the, in most novels but then at the end I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if I agree with you about the despair at the end because the final paragraph says, okay let's just read the last two, as it happened then Lote fell asleep before either of these adversaries did Far into the night, they held lively conversation with one another, pointing out absurdities in each other's characters and promising mighty promises, each to be fulfilled at an early date. But the sound of their brave chatter was good in Pertalote's ears. She had been successful. She slept peacefully. So we're getting into, you know, our point of view is shifting again outside of the characters. Yeah. And the book is telling us that what they were saying was brave And that she had been successful. And so at the end of the novel, the book seems to be saying to me that he has overcome his pride and his despair in the end. And that would be willing to, along with John Wesley, go into the crack to find find the dog, to see him again. So do you disagree with that, Heidi?
2: No, I don't. I think that even as I said it, I was like, I might be overstating it a bit. Um, I don't, I, I think it could go either way. I don't know, Tim, what do you think?
0: I think it could go either way also. <laughs> that was really helpful. Uh, oh, good. No, no. Well,
2: the psychology is consistent, but a bit slippery, like or elusive. It's, you know, like there's, again, that's what, when you read a book, we tend to Make a judgment and then rethink it. And when David mm-hmm. was talking, I was like, "Yeah, that's a great point." Um, I think that
1: because the narrator is telling yeah. us that the way that they're talking is is she it's it's brave. That the things that they're saying, like two guys saying that they're going to go off to battle, we're not meant to hear it as like boasting about things that are not real, but that it, that something was right. truly changed, like
2: coming alive yeah. again. Right. Yeah, repentance leading to this healing.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: Agreed. Yeah. I don't think he's at, in despair at the end, and I think because she urges though. him his, yeah. She's urging him to like, that That whole conversation between the two of them is about confession, right? And penance and repentance. And she, uh, and naming is such a big deal at this second uh, in this third section and then in the afterward as well. Like he he crows over the whole he crows that that night long comp line in which he names every single person who's there, or every single animal who's there, and that strengthens them and protects them from mutiny. Right, so there's that pa- the power of naming and seeing and identifying people, um, and so that's such a heroic thing to do. It's such a so this is such so moving to me. Um, and then he's another aspect of the naming was then at the end of the night he's kind of diabolically named by the laughter and he says about the, the laughter, he says, it sees me. Is that right? It found me or something like that. Um, it knew him is what it says. Is That's what it was. I'd made a note of it. Um, that malevolent laughter after he spends all night pouring himself out, naming others. There's nobody to name him, mm. right? And so what happens then is this malevolent laughter happens and it knew him is what the book mm. says. So he's like diabolically or invertedly, I just made that word up, added an L-Y at the end of a real word, named. and And so he lost himself then. Hmm. Right, And that, and then at the end, she f- essentially forces him to say out loud, to name his sin, knowing he cannot be healed until he names it, until he confesses it out loud with his words. And that would make it real. And so, and that, but be- before that happened, he, his words were so condemning and cruel to Mundo Kani and to Pertelo And, but then when he confesses it as sin, and she can loud, rest. that's what brings his healing. Yeah. right? Um, And that's true for John Wesley Weasel too. Like they have to say it before they can be healed. And so I think he ends in a place of healing and restoration and beginning of restoration. You know, there's two more books and so more happens, but that is like, that's his healing, not his big heroic action. That's not his healing. It's repentance and rest And that's very scriptural, right? That's Isaiah chapter 30. It says like, not in horses and battles is in your strength, but repentance and rest is your strength.
0: Speaking of the importance of names, did you guys um, make... Go ahead, Dave. Well, I was going to go in a different direction. So you continue with that thought, David, and I'll pick up. No, no, it's fine. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, speaking of the importance of names, did you guys make anything out of John Wesley... The weasel. Mm-hmm. I mean, there we have a, a kind of like a classic Protestant reformer name, Wesley, the father of Methodism, Anglicanism, Episcopalianism. Um, so, and that name is plunked into the middle of this medieval book. Are we to make something out of it?
2: I think yes, but I don't know what.
0: Yeah, I don't what know Like truly, as I
2: was like, what is? I would kind of liked that. Yeah. I kind of have like a question mark by that. Mm-hmm. I In my notes, there's a literal question mark John Wesley? Question mark, mm-hmm. question mark, mm-hmm. question mark.
1: <laughs> my my number one sort of silly confusion about this book, I admit, is why do, if this is before people times, why do the animals have people names? Did the animals invent question. the people names and then the people took them on?
2: They also because if say so, that, that changes my worldview falling. a lot. Totally. They also said something's falling from the sky. Might have been rain or sun or something. Falls like bullets, in this like very you know. Mm -hmm. So that there's there's a couple of anachronisms there, which seem to me probably purposefully left in, um, because everything's so carefully. And and in that
1: way, it does feel
2: constructed in the world, less
1: old and a little more postmodern.
2: Yeah, I was saying to you before we started recording, David, that as after I got to the end, I realized, man, this. In spite of, or in addition to all of the medieval aspects of this novel, elements within the novel, this is a very modern novel that explores the frailty of the human condition, uh, just as much as it presents a compelling world in which to hold it, you know, to hold that frailty.
1: Hmm. Hey, I want to ask, well, if Tim, you, I'll ask this later. Tim, you were going to say something or, or did you get a chance <clears throat> no, to no, say no. what you wanted to say? No, I'm good, so I was talking about the crowing. We talked a little bit about the the calendar like the the hours and things like that is is do you read him as a sort of priest i mean you said he's not meant to be like mm. Christ, but is he meant to be some kind of a priestly figure? Well, I
0: sure took him that way,
1: given that he is crowing the the hours
0: yeah he's the, he's the one that like Gives order to the time and, like, and thus gives order to everyday life. This is when we start. This is when work starts. This is when we cease. And that role is, like, you know, absolutely integral to the the health and well being of the colony of life. Okay. So, then given that,
1: how are we supposed to read his? his foibles. Mm. I mean, it's a book that is about the spiritual life in many ways. And yet this priest-like figure here is, you know. Got shortcomings. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Major.
2: Yeah. Well, and I, I thought at first when I first started the book, I thought that the whole coop was kind of like a, was going to be a like a monastery like an allegorical version of a monastery Mm. or the church Mm. right that he was going to be almost like a pope figure kind of but his actions are more consistent with a king archetype
0: yeah not yeah right in my opinion rather than a
2: priest but he does order the time and as as tim points out in crow the hours um and um so, yeah, I think there's a bit of fluidity there too. But I, I, I would say I think he's more of a king than a priest.
1: So, is he but like that's a, a priest king? I mean, is that like because he's, you know, people have talked about like the Compline and stuff, mm-hmm. the All Might Compline and mm-hmm. things like that.
2: Well, and he has a prophetic role too, right? Because he also can see some things that are coming and receives visions. Right. His dreams. Which is why I, I thought he was going to be this Christ figure uniting all of these the prophet, priest, and king. And then it ends up being Mundo Kani, which is just such a twist. I didn't expect it.
0: <laughs> you know, I wonder if there's kind of like a commentary, you know, that Shanta that Clear continues. I mean, he never fails that I recall in the book to kind of fulfill the role of keeping the hours. He does mm-hmm. that really consistently despite his inner travails and exterior travails. And I wonder if it's kind of like, you know, moms and dads might fail in this way or in that way to be good parents, but as long as they kind of keep the hours, as long as they are, you know, providing warmth, food, education for their kids, you're like, yeah, you're still doing the fundamental things, then it might not make you the very best parent. You know, kids need more from us than just those things. But those things are essential. I mean, I kind of read Chanticleer's kind of like, he never failed to do those essential things, even though he did fail in some of his more like spiritual and physical struggles I you need to go. I do. I think Susan. the reading gobbled into my time. The last that reading, which is kind of that, just was fun to do. And by the way, I was the last back to record. Do you realize what a slow reader I am? I am such a slow reader.
2: It's because you're such a close reader, you're well
0: being careful. Well done. I said fifteen,
1: and then you were like ten. I to know. I had throw down the gauntlet, so then I had to, I had to speed up, and then. You weren't back yet. Or I'm just
0: a little close reader.
1: <laughs> Heidi, any final thoughts? Next week, we'll do the Q&A. We've, we've gone to the end of the book. So next Perfect. week, Heidi, you want to you wanna post the thread?
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to post the thread. So, and I really want to hear people's thoughts on this issue. Like I, now I have so many. So I I have a thousand final thoughts. So I think that my final thought then has to be, This is a book that raises more questions than it answers, and that it's trying to do that. It's trying to kind of upend some expectations um, and uh, conflates a negative word, but overlap, maybe a better word, overlap some literary and spiritual uh, and political archetypes and make us look at them and ask questions about them. Um, I know that there's commentary and statements within this book. There certainly are, but I'm left with more questions than answers and kind of a desire to delve into it more and get to the bottom of it.
0: Tim,
1: do you want to add anything?
0: I I don't want to add anything. I'm really curious to do the Q&A next week because I'm curious to know what our readers who have demonstrated such ability as readers like the ways that they're reading this book. I'm actually looking for a little instruction from the Q and A. Yes, particularly people who, for whom this is one of their hard books. Yeah. Right. Right. There's clearly things that they see in this book that I'm not seeing. So I'm curious to read those. I'm assuming those will kind of show up through the questions on a, David, do you have a final
1: thought? Well, on an episode of bibliography coming soon. I was talking to with a with one author who was talking about how the experience of, between a book and a reader is a sort of mystical thing that no no writer can account for. Um, and in the afterword to this um Wanggren wrote um, he he wrote he wrote <laughs> meaning devolved from and must follow the reader's experience, meaning therefore springs from the relationship between the reader and the writing. Should I, the author, ever state in uncertain terms what my book means, it would cease to be a living thing. It would cease to be the novel it might have been and would rather become an illustration of some defining, delimiting concept. Sermons do that well and write properly. Novels in which themes demand an intellectual attention can only be novels in spite of these didactic interruptions. And I think that gets, end quote, I think that gets at that notion that there is a sort of Mystical thing that each reader has with, with mm-hmm. books. I think we see that all for the time sure. on the show, right? Like for sure. Each of us like books that we do on this show to varying degrees. And then sometimes we'll have books that we're like so stoked to do. And the readers that collectively are just sort of like, eh. what? like, I'm a hundred percent sure that Confederacy of Dunces, which is coming up later,
2: I am dreading is that book.
1: Going to be one of those. And Oh, Heidi, really? Yeah. Turns out it just hates it, really dislikes I, it. I've
2: not read it, I've never read oh, okay. it, but I am like dreading. I think I'm gonna hate it. And oh, I'm no. so I'm hoping I won't, but if I do, I do. You know what I mean? That's just yeah, the way right. we are. And, right, sometimes and, we're like, I just don't like it. And that. then
1: Tim and I can fight
2: you, you can about can try it. We can, can, try can to coax you, you,
0: you. into right. affection.
2: Awesome. And our good friend, Sean Johnson, for who I think that's one of their favorite books.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, we'll do the Q&A next week. Bye, Tim. For Tim McIntosh, for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading.
2: Planning for your next trip?